Welcome to Below the Line, where we talk about working in Hollywood from the crew perspective. My name is Skid. I'm a former assistant director and your host. It's our third annual Oscar series, where film industry professionals discuss the category of their expertise. And today is episode four of 10. We're releasing two episodes per week, and that'll take us right up to the 94th Academy Awards on March 27th. This episode, we're talking about animated feature, and I've got a couple of industry veterans to offer their insights. First, welcoming back to the show, Kent Secchi. You're a 20-year Hollywood veteran, and your animated credits include Megamind, Peabody and Sherman, and The Boss Baby. Nice to see you again. Hey, it's great to be here, Skid. Thanks for having me. Next, Camille Aganza. You've been working on animated films for more than 20 years yourself, with credits including The Incredibles, The Secret of Kells, and going back to your start in the industry, The Iron Giant. Welcome to Below the Line. Thanks, Kid. I'm super happy to be here. Well, I'm really happy to have you both here. This is always a fun category to review. Listeners, if you want to learn more about my guests, please look them up on the Internet Movie Database. Below the Line has its own page on IMDb, so it's easy to start on a specific episode and simply click through to see their film credits. The five animated films recognized by the Academy this year are Encanto, Luca, Raya and the Last Dragon, The Mitchells vs. the Machines, and Flea. We're going to discuss them in that order, and spoilers are possible, so consider this a warning. Let's jump right in with Encanto. Tell me what you thought about this film. So Encanto is a really interesting movie. Oh, do you think, Camille, I mean, in terms of like, from a Disney uh, standpoint, it takes place in Colombia. It has, uh, it's very faithful to the Latin American experience. And it features, uh, it's probably the year of Lin-Manuel Miranda. So it features many of his, uh, of his, his all of his, his songs from him and the hit song, uh, you know, We Don't Talk About Bruno. Absolutely, yeah. I I love Gen Canto. It was the only, uh, the only film I saw in the theater last year uh, with my daughter. And it's been nonstop played at my house uh, since then. <laughs> so I, I'm very familiar uh, with Encanto. But yeah, I think it's a really beautiful film. I think it's it's colorful, the music was great, and it was a really moving story. Yeah, it's uh, fascinating on the story side. It's different from a lot of Disney movies because it doesn't have an outright villain. Like people have talked about this. This has been discussed heavily sort of in the industry, especially in the context of Disney, which I mean, the arced villain is, is a, a classic Disney trope, let's just say. And in this one, they've really shied away from that. It's a, it, and it's a really interesting, different kind of film because of that. I think that one of the fascinating things about it is that when the filmmakers talk about this movie, it has a magical background. It has magic as part of the whole powers and magic are part of thematically of it. But they discuss it when they discuss the film as a whole. They said it has to work without the magic, which then points back to what is it the core story that is sort of holding it all together and really is the story of family, which a lot of animated films are about family. Let's face it, that's sort of a thing in most, a lot of animated, especially four quadrant animated films. But this one, it really has the family dynamic as its core sort of central theme. And, and I think that's why a lot of people can relate to it is because it does have these different roles that people play in a, in a family, the favorite, there's sort of the outcast, the one that holds it all together, the one that has all the expectations placed on them. Like all of those are sort of roles were fulfilled in this film. Yeah, I agree. I I think the family dynamic was really beautiful in this film and, and even the house being a character. I found the house to be really charming and actually one of my favorite uh, parts of the movie. 
And I was happy it came back at the end. Sorry, there will be spoilers. <laughs> there will be spoilers. <laughs> there will be spoilers. <laughs> oh. uh, but it's, I, I mean, I think musically, it's wonderful. You know, I, I think Disney has found just such magic with Lin-Manuel Miranda that, you know, they are kind of recapturing from like the glory of the Lion King, Little Mermaid days. Mm-hmm. And it's, yeah, I, my daughter was singing surface pressure yesterday, like all day. <laughs> uh, so it really is just 24 seven at my house. <laughs> you touched on something, Camille, that I agree with as far as like, from a technical standpoint, for me, the house is almost a show stealer for me in terms of like, when I watch Disney, especially Disney animated films, they do such a great job of infusing anthropomorphic qualities into something like a rigid, like what we call a rigid body object, like a house is made out of bricks and stone. And it's like the kind of thing that's hard to move. Like, so you have to come up with different rules and ways to make the house feel like a person almost and move around in a way that's sort of still believable. It has to exist in the physics of the world that it lives in. And, and the, the house steals the show for me when I'm watching it, I was really enchanted by the house itself. And it reminded me of some of the older Disney stuff, like Fantasia, in which they do the same kind of thing. They infuse a lot of anthropomorphic qualities into things that like aren't really alive. And, and like I think that is one of the things that's really special about the film, that when viewers watch it, they should really take note of like how much you buy the house. Like I think that's, you know, people have seen superpowers and magic, but like the house being such, having such personality, I think it's not an easy feat especially because of the scale of the house versus the person and all the different views of the house. You know, you're either inside, you're outside, you're close up. You rarely see the house as a whole from a wide standpoint. So the things you would do, but creating a face are not what's used in, in sort of personifying the house. And I think that's a real great animation trick. And it also speaks to what we call rigging, which is rigging is the technical part of animation in which a 3D object is given controls and bones and it allows the animator to move them in a way that has feeling. And so that is not easy. Like that is something that's super challenging on a technical level, but they are very successful in doing it in terms of like the individual tile work that moves sometimes, or it's a door or it's a doorknob or the windows, like all of those little things are pretty fantastic in how they, they, they made those things happen. Yeah. I, I think that's a great point. I mean, I'm just imagining you know, who rigged that house or, or, or the people that, that rigged that house. Right, the team of people that rigged that <laughs> the house, team right? of people. Just, you know, because I think when people watch it, you know, you're looking at this beautiful house, but when you have all these pieces that move, you know, somebody designed it, somebody built it, somebody rigged it, somebody surfaced it, right. you know, so there's just so much work that goes into it. And um, yeah, I, I, I wish I could see the the rigging the behind the scenes <laughs> the rig. of rigging on that yes <laughs> the other thing i thought was sort of notable in this film overall is the character design so one of the things that has happened in the industry as a whole is there's a movement away from the idealized characters or fetishized characters and these are really like especially the women are portrayed as real women like they have curves they are different shapes and sizes and they're celebrated for those shapes and sizes, which I think is a big change at Disney from the princess tropes of the past. And if you look at the character designs of Mirabelle, she wears glasses, she's a full-figured woman. I think all these things are actually really to be applauded because the more you can project yourself as a regular person into a film, the more you can relate to it. And it, it sends a very good message in terms of who can be a heroine or who can be a hero in a film. And I, I really, I thought that was a really great difference in this film from other ones I've seen in the past, especially like this kind of film from Disney. And I was, I was really happy to see that. 
definitely. I mean, you see different shapes, sizes, colors, you know, just, you know, the fact that it is in Colombia, it's just, you know, it's a different origin of story for Disney. And right. I think it's a great representation of culture from South America. I do know that along those lines, they took a, a trip down, a bunch of the filmmakers who went to Colombia for some period of time to do some research. And that's something that does happen from time to time in animated films, especially if you go from a Disney or a Pixar where they really spend a lot of time on research. And I think it creates that authenticity that you really want in a film. And it, it, I think it shows, it really shows in this, in this film in terms of like the way it looks. And, and that's something that's, uh, I, I'm always amazed at Disney at how much time they spend in making something look great. And uh, this is no exception. I also think the animation style is a classic Disney animation style. There's underlying comedy, a lot of squash and stretch. The Bruno character, which the famous song is about. Um, I think he steals the show, to be honest. I think John Leguizamo's voice is fantastic. And it's, and not everyone's a great voice actor. You can have a great sort of, you know, actors that just don't work out as well for whatever reason, they don't translate as well into the to, into animation. And his voice is fantastic. And I think that his voice paired with his classic Disney squash and stretch animation and it's just that right amount where it's not too cartoony, but it feels right for the film. I, I think that when it comes to character pipeline and design, Disney's by far herald, heralded in the industry as like top notch. Like they have a sh kind of a style which people could talk about. And I think that they're known as the appealing character. That's the way that they are sort of been sort of, you know, painted, but it it is true. Like the characters have a lot of appeal that they, they, they look great from every angle that the shape language really works for each of them. And especially in a film which is untraditional in terms of the shapes to the characters, they really did a great job of getting that all right. Yeah, I agree. John, John Leguizamo was fantastic. And just the character of Bruno, everything about him was so, was so fantastic because they don't talk about Bruno, but you, you do, you, you hear so much about Bruno in the film. And then when you learn, you know, he's actually not this scary character. Uh, he's this heartwarming, charming, sad character who's been living behind the wall to protect Mirabelle the whole time. Um, when he, when I, when they showed that little, you know, his little table and, and the plates and the, the knife and the spoon that he'd carved in so that he could, you know, have dinner with his family. I mean, I just, it, it kind of broke my heart. I mean, the staging of that is great. Like that's another thing about this. That's where you have design, and layout, which is the department that I work in, like really working together where you feel the connection between these two separate spaces, right? And so it starts with design, but then it comes together through story, which is storyboarding, and then f finalized sort of in, in the layout department where you shoot it in a manner that connects these two disparate spaces and makes them feel one. And I think that's really uh, a great scene and a great example of great layout there. Also, most people don't realize this in animated films that are especially musicals, there are choreographers they hire to do the dance numbers. So like there's oftentimes a choreography be hired and they film the, the choreography done by the choreographer and then the animators interpret that choreography when they create the dance numbers. And that's, that's something that's super challenging and interesting to me because I've never done a musical personally. So the thought of like, oh, we have to find this choreographer who's going to define the dance, but then you have to make selections from that dance to make it work for the animated environment. Like all of that works together in, in this film in a very uh, amazing way. 
Boss Baby wasn't a musical, Ken. I'm afraid Skins that Boss Baby was not a musical. <laughs> I'm thinking of another film, I guess, that I'm getting mixed up. I, I, I want to ask you both to talk a little bit more about the animation of this. So we're going to be talking about Disney quite a bit today. This is the first of their nominations on the list. Are they using the sort of a house style in this approach? Some of the things you mentioned that are typical of Disney films, or are there aspects of this animation that are unique to this film? No, I think this film really embodies the classic Disney style of 3D computer animation in terms of what they've done in the past. But that's not a, not in a pejorative sense. I think that it's they're fantastic at it. They're generally known as a great character animation house. I think that that's sort of, you know, one of their big pillars in terms of how they're perceived in the industry. And I think they did a great job. I just think that it's a classic, you know, sort of thing. And it's interesting because we're going to compare this to the other ones from the Disney world, which is Raya and Luca, even though Luca's from Pixar, but they're all under the Disney umbrella. And they're really, to me, they feel very different. And, and I, I mean this in a good way. Like, I think that's great that you can have different styles embodied in different movies because they're appropriate for the film that they are. But I think this is a classic Disney for me, at least. I don't know, Camille, if you, if you agree with that or if you saw something that stood out as different. I, I would agree with you. I, I think it is classic Disney. I think it's, you know, it's a, it's a heartwarming story with, beautiful animation and and beautiful design just all around so you know disney's known for for great storytelling and great design and i feel like everything about encanto is that you know yeah. it's it's just this this beautifully told story uh that that touches you if you if you you know if you have a family <laughs> if you you know you've had any kind of feelings in life um, <laughs> in life in general in general like, you should <laughs> you should enjoy it one interesting thing about the film are the use of effects is actually quite, quite good. And when I say effects, I mean the simulation. So every time you see a sparkle or a magic effect where something falls, like they're using a, some kind of simulation software to make that happen. And there's a lot of, since the characters are magical, there is a lot of it in the film, a lot of glowy things, you know, they'll, they'll, all those are all done by artists who are using and, and trying to come up with different ways of, of using simulation software to embody these different characters' uh, powers. And, and, a, 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 and it, they do a fantastic job of that. I think that that is something that is another aspect of the film that I thought was really well done with the sim Sims were really well done. And I, and I think the production design was fantastic too. Cause if you think of all the, the different powers and the rooms behind each of the magical doors, I mean, they're all really unique and representative of the characters. Yeah. They live within that world and are right. believable, but they're all super unique. So right. I, I really enjoyed that piece too. So like Disney makes a superhero movie without it being a superhero movie, essentially is what's happened here. You know, like you have, you have that story that happens in the sort of behind the scenes of this one for me at least. Do you have a favorite song, Kent? <laughs> I, I, I have to say the catchiest song for me is we don't talk about Bruno. I mean, come on, like that's the one that you're like, yeah, it's pretty funny and it's, it's really well done. I don't know, what about you, Camille? You are someone who loves the song. I, I do. <laughs> um, I, re I really enjoy surface pressure. Uh, that is my favorite. And I also love the, the animation in that song, you know, cause they kind of, you know, spin off into that dream world where, uh, the sister is, you know, carrying the world and going through all of this in her mind, yeah. um, floating through the clouds on the, were they little unicorn donkeys? <laughs> I really enjoyed that. <laughs> the unicorn donkeys. Yes. I, you know, and it, we would be remiss without saying like this, this film, a lot of times we ask in the world of animation, when you work in the animation industry, it's like, why does this have to be animated? 
why is it not a live action movie? Especially nowadays when anything can be done in a live action movie. And for me, it's, a lot of it's the house. Like the house itself would be, you know, you could do a CG house, but like to make it fit within the world, I think this, it really needed to be animated and to feel animated. And I think that's, at least for me, when I look at that, at the film, like that's the world building of the house is a unique character and would not translate as well into a real life, like practical house or even like a CG version of a practical house. I just don't think it would have the same charm. Yeah, animation brings the magic. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> we'll move on to the second film on our list. As we mentioned earlier, it's also from Disney under the Pixar label, but that would be Luca. I really liked Luca. Uh, I felt I felt it was an interesting movie, especially because the stakes are so low. Like in really, you know, in some ways all of our movies have gotten to the point where they, we're saving the world or all these things are happening. And really, in some ways, it takes away from the personal story. And, and Pixar always brings things back to a person, even like a bigger movie like The Incredibles where there's a lot of superheroes and things. There's, there's always a personal story in it. And Luca really has that. And I think the story of these two friends that, that's underlying it and the idea of friendship and leaving one's home, I think those things are very real real things, real, real issues that kids deal with that, that even adults like deal with the evolution of friendship. I, I think that is something that's really great in this film. And the uh, director uh, is actually Italian. So uh, I've heard interviews with him and he, and his best friend was also named Alberto. And so he tells this funny story where he went to Italy to promote the, the film and he met up with his best friend, Alberto from Italy, who he grew up with. And Al Alberto has a two-year-old. Alberto's son sees this, or daughter, I forget which one it was, but sees the film and says, well, does, does, Al, does Alberto see Luca again? And he could tell him, tell, tell, tell his kid, yes, he does, he, they, do, they do see each other again. So I think in a lot of ways, it's a super personal film. And I think it shows. I think it shows in how the film feels, uh, you know, and especially the ending when the, the uh, spoiler alert, Luca goes, leaves essentially his best friend to go to school. And it's this sort of almost sad moment. It's a melancholy moment, but it's, I think about a lot about life in that, in that way of like your friendships when you're children and kids and adolescents, even teenagers, like, uh, uh, you know, they evolve over time and your life goes on. And sometimes you do grow apart. I mean, not in a bad sense of like, you don't, you drift apart, but that you actually have to go your different separate ways. And I think that's an okay, I think it's a great story to tell because everyone has to deal with that in their life in some way, shape or form at some point. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, I thought Luca was, was, I mean, they're all beautiful. They're all just absolutely beautiful films, but you know, it is this kind of smaller compact story that's limited to this certain area in Italy and then in the ocean off of the coast. Uh, you know, the sea monster world and the Italian world. Yes. Vespas. Yes, you know. Vespas. Lots of Vespas. <laughs> and, and just this kind of, a lot of Vespas. <laughs> a lot of Vespas. Uh, and, you know, this kind of idealized, like, 1950s, 1960s setting, you know, that these, these kids live in. And it does capture that magical piece of childhood where you're growing and learning and just, you know, having that, super tight bond of friendship as you're growing up right. um and then having that that loss at the end yeah. it's good that they they got you know in real life it, they get back together because I just, <laughs> <laughs> I did, it was a little sad at the end 
but you know i i think it's 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 beautiful and i, and I think what it opens you know pixar amazing with water first of all by the way right. because I if mean, you look at <laughs> like finding Nemo or finding dory you know they've been doing that for a long time and so when you're we open up and we're in that underwater world it's absolutely ridiculous like yeah, it's, it's so totally beautiful ridiculous. and well done that's not easy no it's it, and that's sort of interesting there are little subtleties that people should the audience or, or listeners should listen to and or watch and that is when you watch the fluidity of everything in the in the underwater world and even with the camera work it's different from the rigidity or the difference camera style outside and it's that contrast right so there's a thing that we talk about in animation all the time which is contrast and affinity like those are the two pillars of like that create the movie uh, in the visual style like you have some things that feel fluid in this film and other things that feel more rigid and those two worlds you know coming together is the interesting sort of tension right and it's funny because the head of layout, who has my, that's my job that I do on a film, is a person that I know, David Bianchi, uh, who worked at PDI. And he sent me this, this picture of him doing research before he shot the film, in which he was literally in the pool with a camera and flippers filming, seeing what it's like to shoot something underwater. And it's that attention to detail that I love in a Pixar movie. Like, it's just the camera underwater is subtly moving almost always in shots that you think are lock-offs, meaning they're just, you think that the camera's on a tripod or just not moving at all. It's actually subtly moving, which it gives you and infuses the shot with this underwater feeling and, and the hair, you know, like well, all the little things that are like their, their, their hair moving a light, slightly underwater, like all those things are happening in those scenes. And I think that's, it's, it's really beautiful to me to yeah. see it and to sort of feel it. And it's a, technically for me, I'm like, wow, that's, he went through all those shots and made sure those were all moving a little bit. I got to make sure and call David and talk about talk about it with him to see what how you know how he went about doing that. But it's really a fantastic little detail that I think is it could easily be missed. But it's it's really really nice in there. But can we talk about the mouth shapes for a second? Can we just talk about mouth shapes on this film are un, are bananas? Like they're really really cool. And totally what I mean different. by that, they're totally different. So. Okay, when I say mouth shapes, I'm talking about the actual shape the mouths make when they're talking and emoting. They're so circular, so circular, which is very different than most animated films where you have a lot of sharp corners. It's the influence, I think, a lot of anime and comic books and cartoons, Miyazaki in here. Like, so this has been talked about a lot for, is the influence of Miyazaki on this film. Like, so when I say Miyazaki, we're talking about the the legend in Japan anime of Miyazaki who did Spirited Away, who won the Oscar for Spirited Away, um, who's considered the Fellini, I guess, of, of Japanese anime, if I had to sort of describe. Um, he's he's retired like 20 times. I, I'm not, not joking. <laughs> I think he's making another film right now. But I like, can joke about that. But like he keeps saying he's going to retire, he comes back. But the influence of his style on this filmmaker is very evident in its the township that's made, like there literally is a film that looks like this town that Miyazaki has done. Um, even the name of the town, I think of Porto Rosa, which is mm -hmm. same as Porto Rosco. There was a, another Miyazaki film that had a very similar named uh, town. So I think that there's a lot of nods to Miyazaki. And in the character design, if you look at the character design, for example, Luca, I believe has big eyes and a smaller mouth, right? And if you look at his friend, Alberto, he has a big mouth 
and smaller eyes. Like, so that's all done on purpose to sort of contrast their personalities. Like Luke is the, is the more hesitant one and is, is, is a little shy. He's coming out of a shell, whereas Alberto has a lot of bravado. So his mouth's bigger. So those little subtle things are in, in, imbibed into the character design, which I think is unusual in our CG world. Like generally it's harder to do that kind of stuff than it is to do something that looks more realistic, even though there's the uncanny valley, like from a character design perspective, making something that's super circular in the mouth and make it work is really challenging, super mm-hmm. challenging. I think another thing to note about Luca is just how painterly the the production design backgrounds yes. and characters are. If you if you watch it, there's not as many details. So so that kind of realistic animation style that can happen in a lot of CG films, like it's not there. But it's a it's a really purposeful decision, and, and so every shot kind of looks like a painting, right? And and it's beautiful. Yeah, I think I agree. It's unusual for Pixar. So if you yes. look at the canon of Pixar, like especially Toy Story, like was it four, which everything's so super realistic to like move away from that to a more painterly style is unusual. And it actually shows a lot of, I wouldn't, I, I growth is too, it's not the right word, but it shows a lot of risk-taking on their part. Mm-hmm. Because in order to move away from that, you're moving away from your general pipeline in terms of like all of the software development you've done over the years is sort of building on top of each other. And when you go for something that's different, that means you're willing to throw some of that away and develop new things that maybe just for this film alone. And I think that painterly look and it's almost like watercolor in some in some of the texture or surfacing detail that you can just sort of feel it. Like you can feel almost a watercolor p- paper in the walls of the of the of the frescoes and stuff that uh, that you really feel in this in this film. That you can see feel the concept art coming out oozing mm-hmm. onto the screen in this thing. And I think that's a real great quality in this. Uh, the other thing that happens in this is, is it's a it, and when we talk about animation, specifically character animation style, it's super cartoony. Like there's a lot of, there's way more squash and stretch, let's say in this one than in our, our previous film that we're talking about in Kanto. There's even multi-limbs and multi-limbs is a technique in animation, which sort of mimics uh, comic books or cartoons in which a character is moving very fast. And so it's motion blurring, but then you see instead of one or two legs, there's like four and they literally have frames with like four legs and your eye sort of blurs them together as you're watching it. But if you stop on a frame, they're doing multi-limb in there and that's really great it's really a fun thing to do like when they when when they're they take the vespa down and it jumps off that that little jump and they're in the air and then for a second they're you know a little bit longer than a second it feels they're in the air and they're flailing about you can see multi-limb happening and it's a really that's a really fun thing to do and see in a, in a especially in a pixar film yeah yeah and i was reading just some of the things they had to invent just kind of going back to the painterly look um, the transformation software between the sea monster and then the boys, like like transforming that rig, going back to the rig, uh, <laughs> from a sea monster rig to a human character rig, that, that that software didn't exist. And so that's something that they had to invent for this film. And and it's really quick and subtle and probably wouldn't notice it, uh, but it's it's a big deal. And I, and I think with every film, you know, every film that Pixar makes or Disney or DreamWorks, you know, there's always this technology that's being pushed forward um, and, and making things better. Right. And, and Pixar's known for their, uh, their proprietary tools, their commitment to constantly pushing the envelope. Um, and I think this is this film is no exception, but in a different way, like in a really different sort of look 
than where they were going uh, before. If you compare the look of like the backgrounds compared to like Soul or Toy Story 4, mm-hmm. it really is different um, in that way. Um, and I, I think it's super special. Another interesting thing about the film is this is, so the director, and Enrico, he had directed La Luna, which is another uh, short film for Pixar. It was a beloved short film and, and, and the, the listeners should watch it. It's really great, but it's great to compare that film to this one, it's a very lyrical, it's almost like a poem. I don't believe there's any dialogue in it. And to take the aesthetic or the feeling of that and infuse it into a feature film without losing the audience. Like you can do things in a short film, like make it more poetic. It's like the difference between a poem and a novel, right? You have to sort of find a way to take the lyricism of, of the short film and infuse it. It's not at all related, but there's a feeling that that permeates both of these films to me when I compare the mm-hmm. two, that really is evident. So the, the hand of the filmmaker is very evident here. And I thought that was super successful in his, you know, interpretation. I, I think both are takes place in Italy. So like there's, but again, that's the authenticity or, uh, to your own experience. Um, and I think that that's something that's really great. Another interesting thing that I've read over the course of the, the time this film has been out is the question of, of the sexuality of the two main characters, right? And so I, I think it'd be remiss if you don't talk about this a little mm-hmm. bit. And like, and when 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 asked about this, Enrico says, "Well, it's really based on my life, which is my best friend." But he was super happy to hear that the LGBTQ community had embraced this film in that way. And I think that that's another powerful thing about cinema and, and animated films too, because I think there's a lot of ability to project yourself into these films. I think because mm-hmm. because they're animated, I think it allows for that interpretation. And at the end of the day, I think that's okay. I, you know, I like it when people have different interpretations of films than the original creator. I think that's really great. I think it's one of the things about art in general that that's you bring to it your own experience. And I think that owning your own identity, whether it's as a sea monster or as an LBGTQ community member, I think those things are universal. And I think great films have universal appeal because of those things. And um, I know it was a big thematically for him, owning your identity was one of the, the big things about this film. And I think he was very heartened to hear about that embrace. Yeah, I think if you, you know, if you see yourself in any of these characters, you know, you're, you're able to take that with you. And so for, you know, people who who see themselves in these characters, whether they're, you know, part of the LGBTQ movement or not, like, it's personal, you know, and, and, it, and it goes back to Enrico's story, like, this is a very personal story of, of growth and uh, I think it's wonderful to see these, this kind of inclusion in, in a film. And I think we can say that about all of them, but maybe we can say that for the end. <laughs> I, 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 well, let's also say that the world's weirdest triathlon in this film. Let's just talk about that for a second. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Very strange triathlon, but hey, I love it. <laughs> well, Disney scored a third nomination this year with Raya and the Last Dragon. Raya, it to me is that okay. So we've looked at Luca, and we said that one was more cartoony. And then, if I said in context of classic Disney, this one has, for in terms of an animation style, feels like a more of a realism show, simply because of a lot of the martial arts that take place in here, right? So it it actually distinguishes itself from the other two in that way. And it not in a better or worse, but just different. And it shows the shows the talent of the studio to embrace these different styles of animation that are appropriate for the films they are about, right? So this one, uh, Raya, 
it has a lot of fight that classic fight scenes in it that feature martial arts and in order to do that you have to have some uh, some believability in the physics even if they do impossible things you have to believe that the characters can do it and i think in a lot of ways uh that's where I look at these three films. I'm like, wow, there really are three different, very distinctive animation styles in terms of the character animation. Um, and this one has that realism. I think the martial arts sequences are pretty spectacular. They're really interesting for me to watch from a choreography standpoint. I am sure they must have had reference or fight choreography come in and do some examples for them of like how the, these moves could work. That's the only way you get to have them feel this good in a film. I thought Raya was was a beautiful film, uh, just absolutely stunning and different. I loved just the opening, you know, she's, she's completely badass, you know, right around the desert, you know, <laughs> look, <laughs> uh, looking for um, that last uh, piece of Sisu or whatever. The gem. The, the gem. gem, the gem, sorry. Yeah. Um, and, and so it was really contrasted between Aquafina Sisu Right. Like, I, I think that it's super realistic, but then you have this like <laughs> completely bonkers dragon. Right. Right. As soon as you go to the dragon, so world, funny. It's pretty funny. He's oh, funny. Oh. He's really funny as, as the dragon. It's good. It's almost borderline, like anachronistic, but not quite, you know, <laughs> when she talks about like, you know, we do the class project, but I'm the one who doesn't really do as much work. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I get the same grade as everybody else. Like <laughs> that's a funny line in there that I, I, I have a good time with for sure. I, for me, the character of Tuk Tuk is the one that really sort of, that sort of like a, it's like a giant pill bug that turns yes. into like a, a, a wheel. I, I think there's something really great, a giant armadillo or sorts that meets a, 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 a pug is, is pretty great. And so we've been talking about rigging to, to rig that would be a very big challenge in terms of being able to make it become a ball. I'm sure they had very different, they had multiple versions of it and then roll along then unfurl. Like that is not easy to do. That is, that is a, that, and to be convincing, that's super challenging in a lot of ways, but I like that, that character design is really great. I think it's yeah. a really cool looking fantasy character. Other things that stand out about Raya for me, the world building it is literally five worlds that are built for this film. And to be able to do that on that scale is, 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 is impressive. It's not easy to do that kind of, that level of world building in 3D. Uh, and we talked about from a design, modeling, surfacing, lighting, all of it together to create these convincing environments of where people live and these worlds, it's, it's not easy at all. This too, actually, so talking about villains, there's these kind of ambiguous creatures that are the villains. Again, that's sort of moving away from the Disney style of an arched villain. Like it's kind of an existential threat more so than maybe it's sort of timely that we have so many existential threats now in our, our actual lives that there's an existential threat of like this, these creatures that we don't really know much about that are just going to destroy everything. Like that is interesting. Another interesting choice for Disney in terms of the villain, uh, same as Encanto being no villain, right? So mm -hmm. now you have this existential one. And in some ways, Luca has the quintessential Disney villain in the sort of the person they have to defeat in, yeah. in, the, uh, in, the, in the triathlon, the bully, right? I didn't like that guy. Yeah, that, that's another interesting thing about Raya is that the, the villain is not a typical Disney villain. Well, and just to go back on what you were saying about the five worlds, I was reading that just a little shout out for the crowds department at <laughs> Disney. Uh, they animated 72,000 individual elements, which included, you know, over 18,000 human characters wow. and then 35,000 non-human characters. That's a lot. So for, for people, for the uninitiated, 
the crowds are actually done by a, a department. There's almost always the crowds department, but it's actually the sum total of a lot of departments to do crowds. You have to come up with the system to generate enough variation in the characters themselves so they don't look repeated. And so almost all the major studios have a crowd or a generic system in which they literally mix and match different materials for their cloth or clothing and face shapes and heights and limb lengths and like eye color, hair color, in order to create a pastiche, if you will, where the production owner has to go through and the art director go through and they select which ones they want. And then there's like an algorithm they develop in order to propagate it through these, these, you know, all of these scenes. And then the crowd department has to animate cycles that can be repeated without looking repetitive for all the crowds. And then they have to be dispersed and moved throughout the entire scene. So there's a lot of, it's, it's, it's really where animation meets technical meets art, right? You have all these things coming together in the crowd department. There's a separate character department that does character animation per se. And then there's actually some trade-offs and trade-offs between the two to help sort of bridge the gap. But it's a department unto itself. And when you have epic crowds in an animated film, there's a whole department devoted just to doing that. Yeah. And usually it's it's for one world. But since they do have those five distinct worlds, like they had to do, you know, kind of five <laughs> separate, separate kinds of crowds, kinds of crowds. Right? <laughs> right? So they have different clothing types, different body types, different looks, like all those things. It just adds up. It should also be noted that this film was started before the pandemic and actually this was the one where, where Disney had to figure out how to finish the movie when everyone had to go home. And from a technical standpoint, that is a big lift. You're talking about a studio who has a tradition in working at the studio. And then everyone went home. And so they had to figure out the remote working method. And they were able to sort of go through and do it. And I read somewhere that some people felt there was even more, there was even more camaraderie because of that. Because people f- felt that they were up against uh, uh, the same problem together to try to finish this movie. And I think that infused, no matter what, that infuses the film with some kind of feeling, right? That it does sort of permeate uh, the film. And, it, and during the pandemic, animation was one of the only types of production that could keep going because of the technology, which is sort of fascinating in a lot of re- really weird and strange ways. I think there was a, an ex- a huge explosion or growth within the animation industry because of the pandemic, which, which probably, you know, no one foresaw until it happened. Yeah, I, I think the pandemic actually moved animation forward like five or 10 years. Like right. we may have been working like this in the future, but this happened, you know, simply because of the pandemic. But right. I, I think all these films were finished during the pandemic. Yes, yes. So, I think that they, they were all, all of these, I think were some, yeah. In fact, I know Mitchell's was too. Yes, I would, yeah. I would bet that that was the case, yeah. But it's, you know, it's it's been amazing just that shift from studio to working from home to working from wherever and what that has meant for our industry as a whole. The industry as a whole is grappling with it right now to try to see what does it mean to come back after the, the endemic or however you want to say it when, it when when this thing settles down, if it ever settles down, what is the industry going to look like at that point? I think that that remains to be seen. But I think that the growth and the and the choices have now gotten much larger as a result of that because because of what happened during the pandemic. Um, it should also be noted, I read this, and this is something that is really interesting about this film, is that it features an all-female technical leadership team. And that is unusual in the world of animation. And I think that's something that needs to be applauded uh, because I think it's about time something like that happened. Animation school is predominantly women. That's, I, I think there's, there, the, the majority of people that go to animation school are women. 
now. Yeah, now, but yet the leadership doesn't reflect that yet. And the, the question is, when is that going to happen? And I think this, is, this film should be marked for the fact that it did feature, and especially on the technical side, it seems even like a bigger hurdle to overcome for studios to like really sort of, sort of dig in and make it right. And I, I think this is, a, this is a big mark in the sand in terms of a studio that literally put their money where, where they, they were supposed to do it. And, and, uh, and it should be noted because it looks great and it's technically fantastic. So, you know, I, 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 I was really impressed to see that Disney had done that. Yeah, agreed. And I think, you know, overall, most of the studios are really leaning into that and trying to have more inclusive workforces, just, you know, increasing representation across the board, because that's how we get good stories. Right. You know, right. Uh, and, and I think that even with the pandemic, like that has opened up the whole world, you know, uh, because we're working with artists all around the world. And um, hearing different stories and, and meeting new storytellers. And so, you know, that's just something that I don't know that would have happened as quickly. I think it, you're 100% correct. What I've noticed also is the ability for someone remote to say, hey, that's not, doesn't feel right to me. You know, so it sort of checks the filmmakers a little bit on preconceived notions about places or people or things that I think allows a little more accountability, even on the micro level on the day-to-day mm-hmm. -day review level, I've seen it happen. And I think that's super important. Uh, and and the, 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 there's, we can talk about all the good or bad of Zoom, but one of the good things about Zoom is it's a great equalizer, right? It allows someone who's maybe not a little bit more introspective, who doesn't wanna put themselves out there in a large room of people to be able to have a voice because it's not always the loudest person in the room, <laughs> speaking yeah. as the loudest person in the room. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> oh boy. Uh, no, but it's true. And it's true because in animation, you know, when you're in these review rooms, you know, you're in a review room with a lot of people who have been working at a studio for X number of years. And so if you are a newer voice in the room, you may not raise your hand, you know, you may not feel comfortable, you know, with that production executive, you know, voicing your opinion. But I think in these, you know, virtual rooms, it is an equalizer, you know, because all you have to do is raise your little hand button yeah. and, and maybe chime in. I think it, it does change the dynamic, right? It does. It absolutely does. The first of our films that is not under the Disney umbrella is The Mitchells versus The Machines. It was produced by Sony Pictures and distributed by Netflix. I loved Mitchells versus The Machines. I absolutely was totally into this film. I laughed probably more at this film than a lot of other films I've seen in a long time. It came at the right time, probably for me during the pandemic. And it has a great message about technology and family. Again, it's the family theme one, right? So yep. it's the road trip during the apocalypse. So it's a family road trip during an apocalypse. Like that's really <laughs> sort of what, what it's about, right? Um, it's uh, brought to you from by directors uh, Mike Randa and Jeff Rowe, who were the team behind Gravity Falls. So if you were a fan of Gravity Falls, the TV series, these guys went on to make this one. This is their first feature. And in a lot of ways, it, it feels like their first feature. And I mean this in the best way possible. I think that they that this story was bubbling for, it feels like it's been bubbling for a long time. It has a kitchen sink feeling to it, which I think is great. Like, I don't mean that, in, in, again, as a pejorative sense. I think it's what gives the film the charm it has is it's, it has mixed media of hand-drawn stuff, line work, CG, painted, there's sock puppets in it. I mean, like, it's just, it's just a lot of, there's like live action backgrounds and some of the green screen stuff that, that Katie makes her own films in. 
it's a love letter to creative people. Like you really feel that this, the hand of the filmmaker for sure in this film, like it's above, you know, amongst all of them. I, I definitely feel it in this one. It's the look. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, I had heard about this movie for years. And, and so when I finally saw it, I was so blown away. Just, it was so creative. It was, it was like a love letter to animation as a whole. And just all the different mixed media that they used just blew me away. And I, I think I was sold just right at the beginning when the, the dad is like screaming out of the car and he, and he like goes between being a howler, like a live action howler monkey and then himself. And I was like, I love this this (laughs) so much. Like I can't even with this. Um, But just the, you know, for Sony, you know, making this film is really just kind of a step up and away from from spider-verse because spider-verse was such a unique look and like they had to break their whole pipeline to make it and it was so awesome and different and then this movie just kind of grew off of that and you know they're doing a lot of the same kind of things where they're just breaking everything and um being super creative i think uh, it yeah it's it you know for a studio if i had to look at studios and say like the big ones like who's doing the most innovative interesting stuff it's sony like for me Spider-Verse, this was actually happened almost concurrently with Spider-Verse in a lot of ways. Like, so it, 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 I think it got some of the, got a lot of the benefit from, from Phil Lord and Chris Miller, who are the producers on this one as well, sort of pushing them, allowing the filmmakers to push the envelope and giving them the room to make this film. And it is, you know, the big knock against modern computer graphic feature animated films is they all look the same. You know, it, it, like there's a, a desire for the hand feeling drawn quality for it to feel more alive. Um, and these this film is a good example of it being infused back in. Right. Taking the best of all the worlds and trying to like sort of create something unique and not being beholden to the pipeline. Like I think that I think there was a driver 10, 20 years ago where the pipeline limitations and costs had to drive the the creative solutions a little bit. And now that shift has happened where the creative is taking, grappled it back over to their side. And not that the two are at odds, but there are limitations to technology that you have to, you have to accept on some level. And I think that that has now, that the, the table has turned on that. And I think that's a great thing in this film that really you can see it in this film. And it's really, really fantastic. The rule breaking, like it just breaks rules all the time throughout this movie, which is fantastic. I just think, you look at the eyes, the eyeballs, just look at how they're not, quote, CG eyeballs. Like, that's one of the knocks against CG characters. Like, oh, the eyes will look too realistic, and they have all the depth inside the iris, <laughs> and I can talk about all that stuff, and the refraction, and all this. And, it, like, they're pretty simple, but they have a little bit of complexity on the edge if you look really closely at the eyes. But they look great and cartoony, and they're very emotive in a way that, like, maybe a traditional CGI isn't. So I think that that's something that's really great about the character design. By the way, love the dog. The mo- mo- can we just talk about the dog for a second? Holy the dog's cow. amazing. The dog steals <laughs> the show, right? The dog's the dog's actually a plot point at how weird he looks. Like that's a plot point, right? That's how we defeat the the the, the, the robots. Is the dog looks weird? Like literally, <laughs> the dog looks weird. That's why we win, right? It's just love amazing. It. It's I just kind of it. like crazy. Well, and the character design too. I mean, it's so unique. It's so refreshing and different and quirky. Uh, it's it's fantastic. It's fantastic, and I and I loved what they what they called Katie Vision. So like whenever <laughs> yeah. Katie has like extreme emotions, either super happy or, or feeling yeah, yeah. down, it's like these two D you know elements like 
come out of nowhere and and you just feel it because you're like oh my god that is that is what it's like to to be a teenager and and have those feelings you do right. feel like rainbows are shooting out of your brain <laughs> um like, <laughs> like i can feel that um and so i just i loved it i loved this movie i think it's something that's pretty special from a a design standpoint. So if I had to look at all these movies and I could only buy one art of book, I would buy this book. This is the one I would buy. I would say because it's so unusual. And the production designer, Lindsay Oliveris, yep. PDI alum. PDI. She sort of got discovered on this film. First time production design. So I think Mike and Jeff reached out to her because they saw like an Instagram feed or something like that. It literally was something. She had worked in the industry. She worked at PDI, Pacific Data Images but it was living up, I think, in Northern California at the time. And then this all started. And they reached out to her. The filmmakers reached out to her because they liked her art. And then she started doing some character design stuff. So she first was character designer, but then became the production designer as the film went on. And that was a whole new role for her. And again, I think that's partly because of the pandemic mm -hmm. that allowed for that ability to happen. And so I think the look of this film, you could point to the pandemic and point the opportunities it created. And certainly for Lindsay, it was, it was a big opportunity and she hit it out of the park, did a great job. It's a fantastic person. So yeah. that's awesome that it, it happened, but it's just one of those things that you can really feel how give, given the opportunity, you can make something different. If you look for the right, look in the right places to find the people that you need. And I think they handpicked a bunch of people this way for this film. I'm sure. Well, also this just a side note, artists, get out on Instagram, <laughs> post your work. So it, 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 it can happen. It can happen. It'll blow up. You can blow up. A Hollywood story. <laughs> yes, that's right. A Hollywood story for everyone that's not in the industry. But uh, what, what a fantastic movie. I really enjoyed it. The, 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 the car is great. The little, little family truckster station wagon. It's, I think it's called Sensible. I think it's the Sensible Model or something like that. It's, it has some ridiculous name. It's really, really funny. I just think the movie is like, it, it is a funny movie. As, as the film, it's a movie about weir a, a weirdos for weirdos. Like, so, yeah. and I say this in the great, in, in, the, in the most positive sense, like everyone feels like a weirdo, I yeah. think to some degree. And so like, there's something here that you can relate to for sure. There's, it's, there's a lot of nods to the film, to films. So the, the, film, the filmmakers are huge fans of cinema. So I think you can see it in the movie and, and the, it's like the robot design looks like the, the, the red eye of Hal's in the pal robot. Like, come on. Like, there's, a lot, there's, a, there's a lot there to be like, pal. Yeah, I, I think it, I mean, you can see it. I mean, it is such a love letter to filmmaking, but also just to animators too. Like the fact that, you know, she wants to go into this, you know, Cal arts, like kind of school. You know, yeah, the just, oasis that she's going to her college yeah. that she has to drive to. Yeah, yeah. And as, and as a teenager myself, I can relate to the eye rolling of my teenager towards me if I were to suggest a road trip to his college eventually, which will come up in a few months. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. That, would not, that would not go over well with my son. <laughs> maybe if there was a world apocalypse. Maybe, maybe. Like robot apocalypse. Yeah, robot apocalypse, but great film. Really, really, uh, I, had, I had more. Uh, this is the film, film I had the most fun watching, I think, uh, last year. Yeah, I agree. And the giant Furby. Oh, we, Furby. I mean, come on. You, know. but you have a giant Furby. I, I, I'm in. Any film with a giant Furby. <laughs> yes, that's right. You got Camille Laganza. First uh, ticket spot. Yeah, I'm first in line. You both talked about the rule breaking that this film does. And Ken, you specifically mentioned how they designed the eyes. 
what else made this a rule-breaking film, in your opinion? You know, when, when Camille talks about the Katie vision of incorporating 2D line work into a 3D movie, that's not a simple thing. Like, that is, you know, for most pipelines, they don't, like, account for that. And I think that is something that was really, really embraced. There's a lot of fourth wall breaking that happens here where, like, there's graphics that just appear in the screen, like, that, like, that stuff almost always is kind of considered one-off in most pipelines. And so to see so much of it in this film was really, really fantastic. And, and usually you'll see a sequence or two that have it, but it's permeated throughout the DNA of the entire film. I think that alone is big. The, the combination of, it looked like there was something- it's mixed animated, media. Yeah, on 2D, on like, like with the 2D in, in incorporation of like, yeah, of, that's, I think there's some shots where like, they literally put like a regular back, like a live action background in some, some yeah. of the like, the footage like that's that is definite rule breaking for sure i think some of it's animated on twos like there's just a lot of different styles at work here usually there's a rule like we're going to animate on twos or we're going to animate on ones but this one does we're going to do everything you know and that's what i mean by the kitchen sink approach but it works for this film yeah if it serves the story right they're not afraid to to do whatever they need yeah i think all of us can point to like films that seem to be like oh i can't decide what it wants to be but this one wants to be a lot but it feels right like and i think that's what, what what makes it work in this film and like i love that combination of different types of media in this movie like it's just and it feels right for the story it's telling about a filmmaker someone who wants to be a filmmaker right yeah and from two people who obviously love cinema like that's very clear when you watch the movie like oh yeah these guys love movies yeah and it also shows i think to a large degree how much the in an animated film how much the producer matters because that Phil Lord and Chris Miller, I think, have a lot of sway at a studio like Sony because they brought the Oscar to that studio. So I think they allowed a platform for these filmmakers to make this movie. Also, Kurt Albrecht, who was the Sony side producer, like, I'm sure it was hard for him. Like, so there's almost always in an animated film, a creative producer sort of that sort of shepherds the directors through, deals with talent and studio and executives. But then there's a boots on the ground producer who says, okay, you want to do all these things? Let me figure out how we're going to get this done. And that job on this one must have been super, super hard. I can't imagine how difficult that was for that person. I'm only projecting, but I'm guessing it must have been hard. And like, that's the stuff that you don't really hear about is the creative stuff's fantastic, but someone has to figure out how to make it work. Yeah, somebody has to track all those elements, the 2D, the CG, the live action. Yeah, how do you communicate all of these things to the artists who have to make it and then you know find a cost for it and justify that cost back to the studio. Like that is not an easy task. And I, I, I would have to tip my hat to Kurt on that one because I think it was a super challenging job and, and it's worth it because look at the product that came out that, that came out here. This, this movie is amazing. But um, I imagine he got a lot of gray hairs while making this movie. Like that's what I, sometimes that's, Part of what goes through my mind when I see something like this, I'm like, oh, this has got to be a hard movie to make, man. Like I saw the same, I thought the same thing when I saw Spider Verse. I'm like, wow, who was the producer on that movie? <laughs> they lost some serious years in their life. Well, the fifth film on our list is Flea, the Danish film that's nominated not only as animated feature, but also best international feature film and best documentary feature. It's hard to talk about these five films together, in my opinion, because you have four films that are really 
for kind of a younger audience, the four, the four quadrant audience. And then you have Flea, which I didn't really know that much about before watching it. And it blew me away. It blew me away so much that I have been like pressuring everyone I know <laughs> to watch it. And I'm like, please watch it. You know, I think it's so timely and so important. And, and if you don't know anything about it, you should, um, <laughs> but, but it's this Danish film where, you know, we, we follow this, this man, I mean, who it's not really his name, but um, he's a real person and his friend, uh, the director of the film, Jonas Rasmussen has, has been recording his story and they've been friends since they were 15 years old and it's taken, you know, 20 plus years for, I mean, to get to a place where he feels comfortable telling his story. And it's so truthful. It's so powerful that I, it's on another level for me. And I have a really hard time grouping it with the rest of the films. It definitely stands out in that way. Like it's also the only 2D animated film, completely 2D animated in this animation, but there's mixed media in this one as well. There's, they combine it with archival footage of Afghanistan and these other places where he's been. Um, on a te purely technical level, the animation's great. It's it's really, really beautiful, well-animated film. On, and like I said, it's 2D, which already stands out from the rest of it. It also, you know, there's this question of why is it animated? And the, the, it could only be animated unless it was done as a, dr dra as a drama or as a recreation, because it covers the life of it, where there couldn't have been cameras, where they couldn't have filmed it at all. Right. And so it, it really exploits the animation medium. And I say exploit in a good way in that it can t it brings a story to life that could otherwise otherwise would not have been as effective. I feel that that what, what happens here is there's a combination of these interviews in which Amin re recounts his life and then it cuts to recreations in animation of his life, obviously, where they've you know done some research about what the houses look like, what people look like, and then made this amazing story, which is the story by itself is great, but then I think you add the animation and it adds another level to it that um, is hard to describe. And I think that's one reason why it's hard to talk about. And, but it's, it's resonated with so many people just to give your, your, the viewers, I mean, the audience, a little bit of, of context. Like it blew away everyone at Sundance last year. So it started, there was a huge buzz at Sundance. It won an award at there. It, it went to Cannes, um, it picked up, uh, I don't even know when Riz Ahmed and Nicola, uh, Nicola Custer Walden became producers, but they became producers on it at some point. Like it, so it has a resonance that's hard to describe. And the fact that it's nominated in three categories says a lot about how not only is it powerful, but like how hard it is to encapsulate or to sort of put it into a category, right? Yeah. And the danger of being in three categories is it wins nothing, right? Because it gets votes in all three. So like, you're like, it's like a hat trick, but you don't get the win. Like it's a weird thing for it, which I, I feel badly for it because, of, but at the same time, I think it's groundbreaking because it was nominated for those three categories. Like, I think it's, it's so great and worth seeing that uh, I would urge people listening to the podcast to actually stop listening right now. Sorry, Skid. Guess we'll watch stop. it right now. <laughs> right no, now. seriously. We'll I will. Get back. <laughs> I, I agree. Like, please go see it. It's so good. It's so powerful. And it's so timely. I think just the story of this man who is 
trying to find his place in the world and his life with his sexuality, with his marriage, with his, you know, coming, you know, to terms with his past and telling his friend his story. You know, it's just, it's beautiful. It's super complicated. Like life is complicated. It's definitely not for kids. It would be hard for a, a kid to watch this and understand really what's happening. Um, it's super timely because it is about a refugee from Afghanistan and the journey that his, he and his family take and sacrifice. And I think it's something that right now there's a lot of sacrifice because of the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. I think almost everyone can relate to some idea of sacrifice for the better good and, and what it means for, to make sacrifice for family and, yeah. for, and to keep people safe. Uh, it's very powerful. I've said that word like a thousand times in this discussion, but I think, I think it's like, it's easily the most emotional of the group of films in terms of like just what it builds over time. Uh, I I love the scene in which the the, the refugees are on a boat and this cruise liner comes, like they're they're adrift and it looks, you know that the guy makes it because he's telling the story, but you don't know what's going to happen. And this Norwegian cruise liner comes up and it's a really powerful scene because they think it's everyone on the, on the, on the refugee boats hopeful, but the people on the ship are like taking pictures of their phone and just sort of look gawking at them. And you just don't know how that's all going to resolve. And I think in a lot of ways, that's what it's like. It's not like a Hollywood movie where in the Hollywood movie that ship would come up, they all saved, but yeah, it doesn't, it's not quite that simple, you know? And when you see these kinds of journeys, like in the live action equivalent, when you see a journey like the killing fields from many years ago, it's an experience where you try to put yourself in that position and it's challenging to do it. It's challenging to put yourself in that position and to think about the choices that you would have to make in order to survive. And I, I think that's something about this film that is really amazing. You know, and, and if, if, if and somebody who listens to season says, they think it's great, is there more animated films like that? Watch Waltz with Bashir. That's another film from a few years ago. That's like that in that way of like, it's telling an adult story in an adult context but using animation. So like, it just shows the ability for animation to actually work in an adult way. Um, and not just the four, not the, the four quadrant from my look, I love those other films too. Yeah, This is a different kind of film. And I think that's, what's great about having this category is that you can afford this ability to look at different kinds of animated films. And this one definitely stands out because of that. Animation is an art form, you know, not a genre. I just always go back to that Brad, Brad Bird's quote, uh, you know, that, that you really can, tell any story with animation and I, and I and I think that that is the one problem with this category is that people tend to just like lump in children's films um to animation and so I'm so this year I've been wrecking my brain like I don't know maybe there should be like a, a, a children's <laughs> one and the adult one um just to give films like this a chance um and also you know it's extremely low budget you know when you compare you know, Disney or Pixar, like that, that is a huge, like money-making machine where they poured like millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars into making it, marketing it. Hundreds you know. of millions. Oh, yeah. Hundreds of millions. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Let's really be um, honest here. You know, and I think like Flea, I, I think I read like they had 10 animators. You I mean, know, that's, like, that's crazy. I think <laughs> only 10 animators on it. I mean, it made a buzz. Annecy is one of those festivals, animation festivals that it made a huge buzz, won the big prize there. So it's won a lot of awards along the way. And well-deserved, well-deserved. Yeah, so go see it. You have to. Just please. <laughs> go, please go see it. Buy, the, buy it. Write him a letter. Tell him how good it is. Talk to me about the technique of starting with live-action footage 
and then animating on top of it. I don't think they did that, though. I don't think they did. At least I didn't read that. Did you read that, Skid? No, I mean, it seems like the interviews, this seems like there is a possibly live footage that they've done because you see oh, the camera in some of the secondary shots. That's true, when he's like laying down. Where if you were animating from scratch, you might not have the camera, like when he's lying down on the prayer yeah. rug. For example, yeah. you on the side shot, you see the camera above. Now it's obviously not throughout the movie live footage because as you mentioned, Kit, they go back in time and sometimes they use different techniques like the shadow figures you right. know, to create some of the emotion that, that he's experienced as a child. But I do, and again, not having read that much about it, and maybe it wasn't the case, maybe it's just that elements that they added in the animation, but I do think that they filmed actual interviews and perhaps even some of the stuff around the house or when he's looking at the book is done with a camera before the animation comes into play. I, I would actually, so along those lines, I bet that did happen. I bet they did shoot the, like a video camera and, and maybe we're thinking about how they wanted to make the movie and then ultimately decided to make an animated film. They may not have animated directly on top. They might have used it for the layout to like, oh, this is, you know, to get the background right and the size of the characters and the perspective. But I think they hand animated the character itself and used the live action footage as reference. So there is a technique, it's sometimes called rotomation in which you sort of, basically make a rotoscopy of a live action and you can run us like in after effects and some of these other composite software. they have these automated tools to do that i don't think they did that here i think what they did is they used it as reference and sort of saw, saw the subtleties in the movement and interpreted that movement in a hand-drawn way like that's what i would say happened probably probably sometimes that rotomation stuff like if you watch the scanner darkly that the link letter one that uses a rotomation technique so that's a very distinctive feeling this does not, to me, have that feeling in it. So I don't think they use that technique. Yeah, I think they definitely used it as, as reference, especially I'm just thinking of that last scene, how it goes from you know, being animated and then live action, and you kind of make that connection. Like, you know, this is a real story, you know? Um, I mean, you've known this the whole film, but I think it just really kind of knocks it you know, out of the park at the end. Yeah, I think that's a great choice too, to like that transition back into live action. So these are like, for the filmmaker making the movie, they're trying to think of ways to sort of connect it back. And I think that's another thing that's a tip of the hat to the, to Jonas is like it's the amazing way that he connects us back to a real thing is, is pretty phenomenal. Yeah, I, I, I absolutely love it. I, I can't even with it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's, I, I just like, as a side note, I think it's really interesting that all five of these films are really about like acceptance, about getting over some kind of like family trauma in a way, um, or drama, uh, like each one of them in their own way, like that is kind of the thread of this, which is is very timely, I think, for all of our lives and and for for all of the viewers. Yeah, I think that that's it is interesting that they all have thematically it's something that thread that runs through them all, which is common. Well, beyond this group of five, were there other animated films from last year that I, that caught your attention? Either of you want to give any shout outs? Yeah, yeah, I'll give a big shout out to Summit of the Gods. Like that film for me was amazing. And that's a, another 2D animated film um, about climbing that I really, really enjoyed. It, I, I personally like climbing. I love Free Solo and I love all those kind of climbing stories. Um, but it, it's really well done. And I found it, it's I think Japanese, I think it's Japanese. Um, it, it got, it won a lot of early awards, but sort of fell off 
the awards circuit track in the later part of the year, but I don't think it should be forgotten. I think it's a really, really well done uh, animated film. I, I enjoyed it quite a bit. Uh, that's another one that it, it's unusual because it's in a, another adult oriented mm-hmm. kind of animated film. Uh, yeah, I think some of the gods as well. But another one I was just thinking of that hasn't gotten enough attention, I think is Vivo. I, oh, I, another I, Lin-Manuel Miranda film. Well, Lin-Manuel. you know, <laughs> everything. Um, <laughs> but it, but I, I thought it was really beautiful. And I think it's a really nice story. It's just one of those ones that I don't think has gotten as much traction. But I think the look of it is beautiful and the music was nice. And just, I, yeah. I really enjoyed it as a, as a story. So yeah, it's another Min, Lin-Manuel Miranda sort of, that guy can't be stopped. Okay. You just cannot, won't, can't not, won't, can't be stopped. Can't right? stop, won't stop. That's what I'm trying to say. <laughs> yes, thank you, Camille. But that was another Sony film. It was, uh, and it it uh, it is a beautiful film. The production designer Carlos Zaragoza, amazing. Another PDI alum. Another PDI. Yes, I'm going to shout out there. But uh, he uh, did a fan. I think the production design is fantastic on that film. It's really really beautiful, and it's one that sort of weirdly got a little overshadowed. I, I I think maybe Sony had to pick up pick somebody to, to a horse to back. Sometimes that happens, and and I think that they for whatever reason they 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 you know for good reasons they picked uh, Mitchell's is a great film. But at the same time. Don't want to forget the other great ones, and I think I think that's a Vivo is a really good, really great film. It has a lot of great sort of these fantasy sequences in the middle of it, which are fantastic, beautiful. just like kind of these two D ish, you know, two and a half D. So gorgeous. Yeah, they're really beautiful, sort of high concept. Again, that's a production design, beautiful, well done, great. Good job, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> well, this has been great. Really appreciate you guys coming and sharing your your insights on these films. And uh, yeah, we'll see what's in store for 2022. Thanks so much for having us. Thanks for having us, Skid. Really enjoyed uh, talking to you about these movies. Yeah, make sure you watch Play again. (laughs) (laughs) Listeners, that's all. If you'd like to learn more about the podcast, please visit our website, belowtheline.biz. That's B-I-Z. It's easy to peruse past episodes. You'll find links to all of our social media. That includes our page on IMDb, where, as I mentioned earlier, you can learn more about my guests. Thanks to Curtis Five for our music, John Juan for our logo, and all of you for sticking with us. Please rate us wherever you get your podcasts. Tell your friends. We'll be back with more Oscars Insights next week.